Well, here we go. We are now in part four, week four of our series called My Story. And it is great to be with you guys as we are in our first service of September. And we are now approaching fall, which is crazy to think about. And uh, this whole year for us, for the most part, has not been very, uh, very positive. Uh, we've not reviewed it well so far, right? And so we've been piling on the memes and all the jokes, and it really comes from a very deep place, right? Uh, it's not been very easy. We've seen our entire world disrupted in a very different way that we really haven't experienced in a lifetime or more. And, and so, you know, we've just, just had to say, you know what, I've given up on this. I don't know if I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I was with a dentist, and even my dentist was like, you know what, I'm just ready for this year to be over. <laughs> and, and it was just so funny because we had just begun to engage this series, and uh, I was just in that thought process of how we have just essentially said, like, okay, let's just get on to the next thing. And so what if we changed that story? What if we said, you know what, troubles are an opportunity for us to grow and it actually is an opportunity for great joy. Well, that's what we've been talking about in the series, is because when you look at Scripture, when you look into the Scripture, it, it says over and over again how God wants to work through hardship, and that in many, many times He will lead us into things that are hard for a purposeful reason. And then James in the Scripture says, consider trouble and hardship, everything that comes, persecution, and consider it an opportunity for great joy, like he referenced it in such a way that one day you will look back on this time and you will cherish what you went through. And that's what I want to begin to lead us toward. And that's what this series is all about. And really what we've been talking about since the beginning has been leading up, since the beginning of COVID has been leading up to this, is that we want to change how we view our story. That we will begin to take steps now that one day we will look back upon and say, okay, this is different. This was a place where things got better. I can see how God was working in this. And you look back up on that fondly of how you worked away your way from that and towards something greater. The decisions that we make today determine the stories that we are going to tell tomorrow. And so we want to begin to make decisions that change this story and begin to look to the future, not just agonize in what is going on now. And so in this series, we're looking at four things that we are going to do to begin to change this story. We're going to talk about what we are starting, what we are stopping, how we are going to stay, and how we are going to go. And we are in, in part four of this, and so we've already talked about how we need to start something. And I encourage you to start a discipline. And discipline is towards what it means to follow Christ, follow God. Do you have places where you can incorporate prayer into your life, reading scripture, we're going to begin to take steps to put him at the center of our story. We talked about what we need to stop. That was our last conversation. Are there people in your life that can say, hey, you should probably stop doing this? Are you engaging scripture enough where God is challenging you in some way? Because that will naturally happen. We looked at the story of Moses and how he was challenged by his father-in-law of all people that helped him walk away from unhealthiness and make his life and others around him better. We sometimes need to stop. It is a crucial part of what we do. Start, stop. And today we're going to talk about what it means to stay. 
And then next week we will finish this in talking about what it means to go. There are times in her story when it's important, very important to stay, and there are times when it's important to go. And we're going to talk about how you figure that out. See, sometimes the best decision, the best decision you can make is to stay. It's to stay when it would be easier to go. The best decision sometimes is to stay. There have been many places in my life where I have made this decision to stay. I remember uh, several years ago, many years ago, I had, I had changed jobs. I actually uh, moved out of state to a completely different area of our country. It was culturally different. And then when I got there, it wasn't what I was expecting. The move is not what I wanted to do. So the job I had before was essentially was not available. I had to move forward, and this is where I could go. But I was struggling culturally. I was struggling with other different things. I was alone. My life had been turned upside down. I wasn't expecting this change to happen. And it was not an exciting place for me to be. And of course, I wanted to flee, but I didn't know what that would look like. And as I pursued God, I was confused. And I didn't know, you know how to navigate that. But the, my decision essentially then was just to stay. Stay the course and figure it out. And it took a long time. The next step or answer didn't happen for a while. Fast forward many, many years, you know, several years later, I, I had moved to New York City, was in a great spot here, and uh, I suddenly lost my job. And then I actually had opportunities that were available to me to move somewhere else and to get a decent job. But that's not where I wanted to be. I wanted to be right here. And so my decision in that moment was to stay. And I found a lower paying job. We were kind of barely making it as a family. But on conviction of what I wanted to pursue with my life, we stayed. My wife and I at that time, we stayed. We had just, uh, we had a daughter and, and, and a new lease and all these different things happening. Well, I worked in that job for three years and things kind of moved forward and progressed. Well, towards the end of that, it got a little miserable. The company was was unhealthy in how it was run. You couldn't really move forward, and I felt stuck. And I wanted to, to move on, didn't know what to do. But I stayed in that situation that was not fun as I pursued other things. I didn't just give up on it. Several years later, our family began to walk through different apartment problems that happened in Jersey City, and we are moving a lot. And it seemed to continually run into a wall of a place to live and other situations that came around that. I've talked about that many times. And, and we had a thought of, like, maybe we should just go. It would have been way easier in that moment just to go. But we decided to stay. Now, when you talk about all that right in a row, it's like, man, you've had a miserable life. But I'm just kind of combining, you know, just little moments of life. But this is what happens to all of us in our story. But here's the thing, some of the best things that I've experienced in my life have come from times where I've stayed. It would have been easier to go, but some of the best things that I've experienced, some of the more joyful times in my life have come out of or come from times where I've stayed when it was hard.
But how do you do this? How do you go about this? How do we live the story that we want to tell? How do we know when we should stay? How do we know when we should go? Well, here's the biggest thing, and this is a key verse in this entire series. It's coming from Hebrews 12, 2, and it says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. For us today, you know, you can take these steps, whether you believe in God or not, and you can learn how to, you know, start, stop, stay, and go, and it can impact your life in a positive way. But for us, the focus is letting Jesus be the center of how our life is lived, understanding that he knows what is best for us. And so we do that by fixing our eyes upon him. This came out of passages we've read recently in the last couple of months where it said you have need of endurance during hard times. You, you need to have confidence, be encouraged. The writer was writing to an audience that was going through much, very difficult times, similar to what we've experienced, but honestly, much worse. And then the author comes here and says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. There is a purposeful pursuit of all of us here. If we pursue Jesus, Jesus helps us live the story that he wants us to tell. Now, that statement's a little hard for you and I because we like to be very independent. We want to be in control of our lives, right? That's a very big thing for us in our culture today, and this sounds controlling. This sounds like it's worse. And depending on your view of religion or your experiences of religion in the past, that seems like, man, this could be weird. What is God going to have me do? But this is the opposite. And the more that you understand his pursuit of you and his story that he's been telling for years and years, we are learning to let go and surrender that to him. He helps us live the story that he wants us to tell because it's the best thing that you and I could pursue and experience. And so my job and my goal is to teach you here how to follow Christ and trust him. But many times we just need to sit and wait and pray. And that's not always easy especially if the circumstances of staying means it's difficult. And I want to recognize the irony of what it means to stay because we've just come out of a time when the whole world is like, stay, stop, stay where you're at, don't go anywhere, right? So we're like, we've been staying, okay, so we're ready for the go. <laughs> and so we just kind of take that a little bit out of the, the conversation because we've learned how to stay, essentially, and that has been difficult. But even within this context, many of you are wrestling with situations just like this. And so today, I want to take a story from what we call the Old Testament Scriptures, which is really the story of God and really the, ultimately the story of Christ, everything leading up to Christ and, and how He's pursuing us. And there are some amazing moments and pictures for us to see and learn from even today. I'm going to talk to you about a story about a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. And so, you know, daughter-in-law, in-law relationships are pretty interesting. And in the context that we're in, when someone married into a family, you know, when you marry into it, you don't just get your spouse, you also get the family that comes with the spouse. You guys, I'm sure, have heard that before. And that can be interesting. I'm thankful to... Uh, to say that I'm, I get along with my in-laws and I like it when they visit and I don't mind going to visit them and I consider that a good thing. 
And so if they happen to be listening to the podcast or watching today, there you go. Um, but in this culture that we're referring to, they actually would live with them. Like family was huge, and they would be family units together. And either they would live in the same houses or they would be very close together, always around one another. Now that, that would be a little harder for me. <laughs> in fact, my wife and I, we've determined that we think the limit, the, the max of what we can hold with, you know, stand with our in-laws is five days. <laughs> We've decided that five days is good. Like that's a strong amount of time, but then we're like, okay, we need to go or thanks for coming. We'll see you soon. <laughs> and so if in-laws are now watching or whatever, now you know, okay? So <clears throat> there you go. But they would be around each other all the time for better or for worse. So this story is found in Ruth, and Ruth is an amazing story. It's not very long. I encourage you to actually read it. It's four chapters long. Uh, it's, it's so well written. If you look at resources um, that, that talk about this book, it's amazing and how, how it's just the literary elements of it are, are amazing. And, and so there are some, there's a thing called the Bible Project, which ha- talks about that and helps you understand it in a, in a greater, in a simple way. Way. But there are three characters that we're going to focus on today that are in this story. There is Naomi, who's the mother-in-law. There's Ruth, who is the daughter-in-law, who the book is named after. And then there's Boaz. And so these are the three characters we're going to talk about today. And I'm not going to read all of it. We do not have time, but I will focus heavily on the first chapter, which really helps set up the whole thing. So here we go. I'm just going to dive right into this today. It says here, in the days When the judges ruled, so this is talking about a time period in the nation of Israel, and Israel is who God chose to work through and begin his redemption project, really, of all of us. And so there's a time when they were ruled by judges, and that was not a great time. It was a very hard era in this nation's time. So this is what this is referring to, all right? So in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. And so they had, to comp- they had to flee their country. So they were essentially becoming refugees. Famine was happening, and they were beginning to scatter. It was a very hard time, and he's picked up his family. He's moved away from this country that was God-fearing to one that was a more pagan-oriented, not a God-fearing country. And so it says this name, this man's name, excuse me, was Imelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Milan and Kilion. They are Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. So they are from Bethlehem. And they went to Moab and lived there. All right, so huge changes going on. They've had to move. Their entire lives have been uprooted. That's, that's a big enough crisis in of itself, all right? And then it says this. It says, now Imelech, the, the husband, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. So a sudden tragedy happens. You move with your family. It says the sons married Moabite women, one named Orpha and the other Ruth. It's not Oprah, all right? If I accidentally say that, it's, it's Orpha <laughs> and the other Ruth, so her two sons. And so suddenly another tragedy happens and Naomi's husband dies. That was... It was not expected, right? And, and so this is a significant event 
But from Naomi's perspective, long term, at least she has her two sons that can continue to take care of her. They can hopefully one day have kids and allow her legacy and family to move forward. It's, you know, all is not lost in that moment. There are things that can still bring her joy. And so in the midst of that tragedy, she will at least have had something to hold on to. And then her sons are marrying. They're marrying, they're assimilating into culture. They're marrying mobile women. And so they're actually moving away from the, the culture in the, that they were coming from, where they were following and, and, and God and all those different types of things. So things were changing as well. It says they had lived there. It says after they had lived there about 10 years, both Milan and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons, and her husband. So now things have really changed. And so for, Na for Naomi, essentially life has stopped. Ten years in, she loses both of her sons. It doesn't say what happened. We don't know the circumstances of that. Um, but essentially, for her, and the way the culture was at the time, her whole family was entirely cut off and ended. And we will see here in just a little bit how much Naomi struggled. This is a hard life. Like, you and I, let's just say, like, we've been complaining about the last six to eight months, all right? So we've given, you know, 2020 the one-star review. Somewhere in heaven right now, Naomi is looking down upon us, right, and, and she's like, how, one year, how about a decade or 15 years? Like, I had a really bad decade or so. Like, this is Naomi's, we're just doing the meme theme. Like, this is Naomi's reaction to, to us complaining about this, this year so far, all right? She's looking down at us from heaven being like, you had a bad year. What about a couple of decades? So this is, this is right, all right, so we'll, we'll move on. I, all joking aside, I think it's really important as you read this story to understand how hard this was. And I didn't help us by showing a laughing meme. But this was extremely difficult. A, a tragedy that would, that, would, that would impact you mentally, physically, emotionally. The desire to move on with life. All those things. The hardest of things to experience as a human, as a mom, as a wife, everything. And so they begin to try to pick up the pieces and move forward. It says, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, speaking of the nation of Israel, it's what it's referring to, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. That's one way to refer to their husbands anyway. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. So she's saying, it doesn't make sense for you to go with me. You need to go back. It says, then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud. As she's, and then their daughter said to her, we will go back with you to your people. And it's obvious there was a good relationship with this mother-in-law. They, 
they had affection for her. They're like, hey, we will go with you. But she was like, why would you do this? You need to go back. She's like, I mean, am I going to marry? She's like, you can't, you can't wait for me to have kids and me to have new sons if I even have a son. Like, that just doesn't make sense. You need to go back to your mother's. You are young still. You can marry again, and you can have a family. So she, she says this to them very plainly, and then she says this to them. She says, no, daughters, it is more bitter for me than it is for you. She tells them to return home, and then she says, it's more bitter for me. And then she says this, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Naomi is bitter. The depth of emotion that's going on in her life is significant, as we could empathize and only could imagine. She's angry against God. She's like, God has turned against me. I'm sure she's thinking, I don't know what I did, but he is, he is, his hand is against me. And she's not happy with God either. And I love how raw this is. And so she's sending her daughters away. This is emotional. This is a huge break in life that they had all planned to experience and live. It all been destroyed. And so it continues here. It says, at this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. So Orpah leaves. But then it says this, but Ruth clung to her. And this is being translated from Hebrew into English, but essentially is Ruth, Ruth was not leaving. Ruth was not going away. And so Naomi responds to her and says, Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her, go her gods. Go back with her. Naomi's really ready to cut ties. But we're about to see how incredible Ruth is and why this story is so significant. She's like, go back with her. But Ruth begins to get real. And I don't know if it took this long with all these deaths and everything but Ruth is now having that like confrontational message, you know, conversation that you would have like with that mother-in-law. It's like, all right, I know how strong you are and you've been the matriarch of this family, but it's now my turn to say something. It says, but Ruth replied, she goes, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. There it is. Ruth has made a decision to stay when it would be easier and make way more sense to go. She says, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. And this is a significant commitment. She's committing to hardship. She said, and she acknowledges this. She says this. She says, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Sure, I missed part. She says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. She's recognizing the true God here. It's incredible. She says, when you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Naomi's like, this is, I mean, Ruth is like, this is happening, all right? <laughs> no matter what happens. This is a pretty dramatic moment. I mean, this feels like, I don't think it's great drama. We should make a television show out of this. It feels like uh, Real, Hives, Real Housewives of something, New Jersey, New York, or whatever is currently going on right now. Like this is a whole family confrontation. And so it says, continues, it says, uh, 
when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. <laughs> She's like, okay, I got it. I, I heard you. So it says, it continues, the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When, the, the, when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. They were excited. In the context of this, in the original writings, it, it says the women of the town rushed to them. They're like, Naomi is back. They're like, can this be Naomi? They are excited that they are here. Like their family members and others, and it's been gone a long time. And this is pre-anything technology, right? This did not exist in any sort of way, you know, beyond what would ever, like nobody knew anything that's happened. And Naomi throws a bucket of water and everything else entirely possible exactly in this moment to let them know everything that's happened. And so she says to them, she goes, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. She's changing her name. She's because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. She's really angry at God. She goes, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Can you imagine the whole town's like, hey, welcome back. Oh. <laughs> I mean, it's like, wow. But I empathize with it, right? Life has been hard. And so it says, So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, who is now in a reverse refugee. The family's, you know, anyway, she's now a refugee in a different country. It says, They arrived in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And so this commitment by Ruth to be with her is significant because there is nobody in the family to take care of them when that was very important this time and this day and age when the family units were happening. And so they were at the very bottom of life. And Ruth then had to go out and find a way to live. And how you would do this, she was going to pick from fields that had been picked over already. And this is a custom, the Jewish custom of the time in this region where they would not pick everything and allow others to have it who needed it for the poor and the needy. That was actually a command of God. But it was something that was very dangerous because it put, for a woman especially, because she was essentially lower than a slave. And so workers in the fields and things like that could abuse her. They could treat her harshly. She could be exposed to rape. She's forced to a life kind of to the level of a beggar. And these kind of things were referenced throughout the story. If you read the whole thing, the danger that was there for her. She goes to work in the fields, and she begins to pick um, so she can begin to provide for her and Naomi. But she happened to pick a field that was owned by a man named Boaz. And this is when the story really begins to turn around. And Boaz treated her with kindness. He actually took notice of her. He's like, um, who's this woman in my field? He, he protected her. He actually began to instruct uh, the workers in his field to leave her alone, to actually help her, to put her in places where she would get better crops. Why was he doing this? Well, he had heard her story. In fact, he was actually a relative within Naomi's extended family, which is significant. But he had heard her story, and that's why he came and pursued her. This is what he says. This is found in Ruth 2. He says, Boaz replied, he goes, I have 
He goes, I've been told all about you. Naomi was like, why are you doing this to me? I mean, sorry, Ruth was like, I've been, why have you been doing this for me? He says, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. Boaz had incredible respect for her. The story that she pursued in staying was a catalyst for things that were to come. But they were not pursuing and making, Ruth was not making these decisions for life to get better. She made these decisions knowing that life was going to be harder. But Boaz eventually steps forward and marries Ruth. In fact, Ruth is a pretty amazing woman. She's actually the one that proposes to Boaz. You think the Bible is all traditional and everything like that, but this actually blows a lot of the norms up. She's a refugee, and she comes in, and she eventually proposes to him. The story's incredible. Naomi was like, hey, you need to get dressed up, and there's this thing happening, and you should go. Wait till he's drunk a lot, and he's sleepy, and then approach him. It's like a, a total scheme that they, they put up to entice this dude, and it worked. He's like, all right, sounds great. But there was, he was actually in the position of a redeemer in the family. There was a thing set up by God in their, their culture at the time where a person in the family could redeem someone who had been widowed. And Boaz was one of these people, he was not married, that could be a redeemer. He stepped forward and was like, there's actually a younger guy than me that can be claim to be a redeemer for you. And he said, so if he's available, he can marry you. And this guy found out that she was a refugee and was like, no way, I'm not going to do that. So Boaz stepped in and says, I will. And he marries Ruth. For Ruth, marrying Boaz, and, and for Boaz as well, it was an extravagant blessing of God. It's an incredible turn of the story, and it redeems the entire situation. It was a blessing of God. But I want us to look and recognize that Ruth didn't stay because she might be blessed. She stayed because it was the right thing. There was no expectation for an outcome. The expectation was we are going to be poor, we're going to struggle through life and find a way through it, and I will die pursuing that. That was the expectation. And I think that's so key for you and I, that we are learning in our time period right now to pursue God. We're not pursuing Him for what we get in return. We're pursuing Him for who He is and what He has done, that we have already been given hope beyond hope because of Christ defeating death and the grave. He is the best thing that we can pursue no matter what happens. And we all come to this place in our lives many times where we ask this question, should I stay the course? When it would be easier to walk away and do something different. And it's important for us to learn that there are times when we need to stay and stand on this principle. It's not always the case. Sometimes it's better to go We'll talk about that next week. We want the good for our lives. We want the great things. We want the happiness. We want life to be meaningful 
and we've followed and we've chased this false god and we've chased this lie that, that if I'm happy all the time, then life is meaningful. But we're learning that that wasn't true. It was a lie. And so we put one star on life for everything. But God's like, no, your life is meaningful no matter what the circumstances are. We want the good things in our lives, but many times it will not come without the struggle and without staying the course when things are hard and don't make sense. And we need that encouragement. And it gives us the strength to sow and so and so in times like this, we know that one day we will reap if we continue to sow into these things. And Jesus is leading you through struggle. He will use it if you allow him. But we must invite him into that conversation. He must be invited into this story. He will use all of it. And so Boaz marries Ruth. It says here at the very end of Ruth, it says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And a surprising statement in Scripture, you should read Scripture more often, it's very interesting. It says, When he made love to her, yeah, it says that, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And then Ruth said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. She's like, God has not left you. This pagan daughter-in-law didn't believe in God has now found him, and she's now leading Naomi in this statement. It's amazing. She goes, May his son become famous throughout Israel. We're reading about him today. He says, he, he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. What a phenomenal statement by Ruth. She is just this, this great women are awesome moment. Ruth is like, I know, I know you had your husband and two sons and, they, and, and you, you, know, you really flashed on to sons and that, that's a, I understand that. She's just like, listen, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons. What an amazing statement she just made. I love that. She's given him birth. And it says then, it says, Naomi then took the child in her arms and cared for him. In some of the translations, it says she cared for him like it was his, her own son. It says the women living there in the area said, Naomi has a son. They were so excited. Redemption. It says they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, who became the father of David. So maybe you're here, sitting here today saying, well, that was a great story. And I encourage you to read it. It's only, it's only four chapters. And you might be thinking, this is great and it's inspiring. It really gives us great context for now and it encourages us to live. Maybe like a great movie that I watch. I'm very stirred and it makes me think about life in a great way. And if you're someone who doesn't necessarily believe in God or you're skeptical, you might say, well, that's kind of good to have and know. It's just a nice story. 
But it's not just a nice story. What's so amazing about this is that this, the story ends with the genealogy. This Obed became the father of Jesse, who became the father of David. And then right after that, it actually gives the full genealogy of their family. What we know is, stopping at David, we know that we have a genealogy from David that leads to Joseph and Mary, the earthly father and mother of Jesus, which fulfilled the prophecy that, that Jesus would come from the line of David. A rescuer, a redeemer would come from David's line, which came out of Boaz and Ruth's family. This is a real family. There is historical record kept. This story happened. It's not just some nice thing that's been said for us to know today. This is the real story of God, historical fact. We know of God pursuing us. And his story has not stopped today. It has not stopped in you. His pursuit of Boaz and Ruth and Naomi is still happening in you, through you today, if you will allow it to happen. And so today, one of the biggest things that I long for you to take away is this story of faith that you can have and you can trust God. It's a story of a redemption. It's also a picture of Christ. Boaz stepped in as redeemer and, re and made people whole again. One day, Jesus came and did that very thing for us. But then you see how God was faithful to Naomi. He did not forget her. He kept pursuing her. But he also didn't just make everything glossy and amazing for her. She still had to struggle through life and work through significant tragedy. And it shows us, hey, God doesn't promise us that if we follow him, that everything's going to be great. No, we will experience pain. And we're reminded of that with what we've been going through this year. But God doesn't leave us alone. Jesus' words still ring true today that he will be with us us. And this is, all of this is why you should consider becoming a follower of Christ. If you want to know more about what that means, you can use your connect card, connect link, and reach out to me. I'd love to follow up with you. This is also a story of Ruth and how she stayed in hard times when it would have been easier to go. So I'm going to end today with the questions we're ending with each week. The first one is this. What does God want you to want? What does God want you to want? And if you don't know that, keep pursuing him. Start disciplines of prayer. Just start a conversation with God. It can be simple every day. What does God want you to want? And what does God, where does God want you to stay? Where do you need to stay? And persevere. Remember, we're learning to let God be the center of our story. Jesus helps us to live the story that he wants us to tell. Let's pursue him today. Let's pray together. Jesus, we love you. God, I thank you so much for this amazing story of Ruth. God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. God, I pray that we would be encouraged today to continue to put our trust in you and take steps towards you.
We love you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.